Tulip Street. So glad to be with you again. Let's see. Try to get. There we go. Are we good? Well, my iPad's not wanting to work for controlling this thing right now. There we go. Maybe. There we are. I think that worked. Possibly. Why did it just turn off? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Jeff, I might need your help on this one today. <laughs> well, thank you all for being here. We got lots of visitors with us, which is always fun to have a little technical snafu right at the beginning of a sermon when you got a bunch of visitors with us. Um, if this is your first time joining us, we're so glad to have you with us. Uh, we hope this feels like home to you. Uh, one of the reasons that we have a lot of visitors is we have a really exciting thing happening at the end of service today, but no spoilers. All right, we'll get there. Okay. God is with us. This is our Christmas presence series. And last week we talked about how God is with us in the valley. And honestly, it was kind of a downer lesson, but God is with us even in the hard times, even in the valley of fear, the valley of uncertainty, and even in the valley of the shadow of death. God is with us. God promises his presence with us in those times. And today we're talking about how God is with us on the mountaintop. All right. I love mountains. Did this, is this going to work at all? I don't know. Next. Yeah, Jeff. I might just have to cue you, Jeff. Um, I love mountains. How many hikers do we have in here? We got some hikers. I know we got some folks that we've talked about in a lot of like, mm, kind of. Over fall break, I went with the youth organization I work with between the crowd. We went down to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and this is our group at the top of Mount LeConte. Mount LeConte is one of the big mountains that overlooks the, the hills and mountains of the Smokies right outside of Gatlinburg. Uh, Mount LeConte, it's a beautiful view from the top there. But getting there is pretty difficult, not gonna lie. It's about uh, five and a half miles up, about five and a half miles down, roughly 11 miles round trip, and some of us uh, fared better than others um, on that. I love hiking, though. But we, we, we discovered, uh, we didn't really discover it, but it proved to be true, the saying, hikers are liars, right? Because as we're going up, we pass hikers coming down, and we're like, oh, how much farther? It's like, oh, not much, you're almost there. An hour later, we're like, okay. But you get to the mountaintop and it makes it all worth it. It makes the journey worth it. Just to see the view, to see the beauty of God's creation. It doesn't come through in this picture necessarily, but that time of year, the, the forests around these mountains were just on fire with the reds and yellows and oranges. It was absolutely breathtaking. I love mountains. God invites us to his mountain. Next slide. God invites us to his mountain. Isaiah chapter 2 says this, in the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it and many people will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. So today I'm inviting you to come up to the mountain of the Lord, to meet him on the mountaintop. Because guess what? God likes mountains. God likes mountains. Next slide. Um, we see this is a replica of the Temple Mount. Uh, the Temple Mount, around the time of Jesus, this is what it would, would have looked like. Well, this Temple Mount, uh, originally Solomon's Temple back in the Old Testament, was built on what we call Mount Zion. But it has another name, Mount Moriah. Yes, the same mountain to which God led Abraham and Isaac, and where God showed up in a big way and provided for Abraham and Isaac on the mountain of the Lord. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided, Abraham said. God likes mountains. Uh, next one we see, uh, this is the traditional location of Mount Sinai, another mountain known as the mountain of the Lord. Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula outside of Egypt. Uh, this is where Moses first encountered God through the burning bush as he's leading his flocks. This is where God leads his people out of egg out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus story and dwells with them there on this mountain for a while to give them the law. God likes mountains. And then the next mountain that we see, this is Mount Carmel. It's not so much a mountain as it is almost like a, a plateau, a mountain range almost with cliffs overlooking the Mediterranean Sea just off to the west of it. This is Mount Carmel and this is the mountain on which we find ourselves in today's story. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, or if you're following along in version, hopefully you can go to the events, and I think it's working, I didn't check. 1 Kings chapter 18. Now again, why are we looking at the story of Elijah during Christmas? I think the connections will be made clear here as we go. God likes mountains. And here we see this scene unfold on Mount Carmel. But before we get there, we have the confrontation. The confrontation. Uh, so last week we looked about, at how God was with Elijah during this famine. Now this famine was a result of God's judgment on King Ahab and his wife Jezebel because they led the people astray into worshiping other gods, particularly the god Baal. Now, God sent this famine through Elijah and he told Elijah to kind of go off into hiding and God provided for Elijah in this valley near the Jordan River. And then once that water dried up because of the drought, he went north and met this widow and stayed with her and kind of went through some tests of faith with this widow. And now God has called Elijah back to confront Ahab one more time. In fact, this, as the story opens, Ahab and Jezebel have sent out people in search of Elijah. They're trying to track him down, trying to hunt him down. Little did they know that Elijah was hiding out in the very region where Jezebel grew up. So kind of funny. But he comes back down, and instead of being found, he makes himself known. So he goes and confronts this guy named Obadiah. And 
uh, has this conversation with him, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Don't you know uh, Ahab's trying to kill you? Uh, so let's look at this. Verse 7. While Obadiah, while Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. And when Obadiah recognized him, he fell face down and said, is that you, my Lord Elijah? Yeah, it, it's me, he replied. Go tell your Lord Elijah's here. And then Obadiah's like, what did I do wrong that you've sent me to go tell Ahab? Like, he's not going to believe me. He's going to think this is a false report. Or I'm going to go tell him, and then you're going to run away, and I'm going to get in trouble, all this stuff. And Elijah's like, no, just go tell him. All right, tell him I want to meet up. Verse 11, now go tell, uh, now you say, go tell your Lord, Elijah's here. Uh, but when I leave, the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you off. But Elijah said, verse 15, as the Lord of armies lives, in whose presence I stand today, I will present myself to Ahab. So Obadiah went to meet with Ahab and told him. And then when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? I love how Ahab's like, Elijah's the one causing all the problems here. Yeah, now look in the mirror, Ahab, it's you. Uh, to which Elijah replied, I've not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, all those who eat at Jezebel's table. So Elijah goes out and has this confrontation. I love this. Uh, Elijah can be uh, one of the most fearful <laughs> and afraid at one point, and then one of the most bold and courageous men that I've ever seen. Like, it just fluctuates from day to day. And isn't that the same with so many of us? Like, we get these grand plans in our head, and like, yeah, we're going to do this big thing, and then push comes to shove, and like, yeah, I'm not so sure. We kind of get timid and, and afraid, and maybe start to put things off, as Josh talked about. Watch Andor, by the way, or you're fired. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, but it is a great show. So Elijah has this confrontation, and then he challenges not just Ahab, not just Jezebel, not just even the prophets, but he challenges this false god of Baal himself. So let's look at the, the challenge that's coming up. Verses 20 to 29, they meet on this mountain, Mount Carmel, up in the north, uh, kind of northwest region of Israel, right along the Mediterranean Sea, it would have been a beautiful view, uh, a, a place where tons of people could have gathered to watch this showdown. Uh, so Ahab, verse 20, summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets to Mount Carmel. And Elijah approached the people, all of those spectators that are just here for a show, Elijah kind of puts it to them. How long are you going to waver between the two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But the people didn't answer. They're like, mm, let's wait and see what happens here. So Elijah said to the people, I'm the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. They've got me outnumbered. Come on, how bad could it be? So he lays out the challenge here. He says, let's bring two bulls. I get one, y'all get one. We'll build two altars, and then we'll each cry out to our respective gods. And whichever god sends the fire to consume the sacrifice is the winner. All right? Plain and simple. 
We all love a very clear winner-loser scenario, right? That's why soccer is so hard for so many U.S. fans, because there's got to be a winner. You can't be a tie. Come on. There has to be a winner. In this scenario, there has to be a winner. It's either going to be Baal or it's going to be Yahweh, the God of Israel. Pick one. So they do. So they set up their altars. They put... They slaughter the bull, put it up on the altar as a sacrifice, put the wood all there and everything. And then the prophets of Baal kind of go to town. They cry out to Baal, no answer. They cry out louder, no answer. They start doing this weird ritualistic dance around the altar, still no answer. It gets to the point where they start cutting themselves and inflicting bodily harm on themselves to get Baal's attention. Still no answer. And I love Elijah's attitude. He is smack-talking the prophets this entire time. He says, oh, maybe Baal's asleep. Yell louder. Or, oh, maybe Baal, uh, maybe he's gone on vacation and he's out of the region or the, the funniest one, and I, I kid you not, maybe Baal is uh, using the bathroom and can't come to the phone right now. And so he's picking at him. He's egging them on the whole time because he knows Baal is nothing. And this is the God, mind you, who not only is the God of uh, agriculture and fertility, but also the God supposedly of thunderstorms who rides on the thunderclouds and sends the lightning. So if anybody, any of the ancient gods should have been able to show up if they were something, it would have been Baal. But it's radio silence, as would be expected. Finally, after hours of this, Elijah says, my turn. So he slaughters the bull, puts it on the altar, rebuilds the altar there that had originally been set up, an altar to Yahweh. He puts the bull on it, he puts the wood, and then he, may, he, he ups the ante. He says, all right, let's dig a trench around this thing. And so they do, they dig out a trench around it. He says, okay, now let's dump water on it. So they get all these water jars, dump water on the, on the altar, on the, sac- on the bowl, on the wood, filling the trench. They do it multiple times until the whole thing is just saturated, soaked, standing water right there. He says, all right, that's good. And then let's see what happens here. The champion. Let's look at that. Verses 30 through 39. So Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the, Lord, the Lord's altar um, and did all the things I just talked about, dumped water all over it. And verse 36, at the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And I am your servant and that the word I have, and at your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Put those words on the screen so we could focus in on them a moment. This is it, God. 
Elijah's like, I don't need you to prove anything to me, God. I need you to prove it to the people around me. Let them know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are who you say you are, that you alone are God, and that you are trying to turn their hearts back to you, that you want to be in relationship with them again, that you want them by your side, that you want them to be your people. So he prayed, and then, boom, the pyrotechnics kick in. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water in the trench. Nothing was left. It didn't just consume the bull as a burnt offering sacrifice. It burnt everything. The bull, the wood, the stones, the dust around it, the wood, sorry, the water, just everything gone. Wow. And when the people all saw it, can you imagine being there, seeing this happen in real time? I mean, what other option do you have? What other response can there be? When the people saw it, they fell face down. Verse 39, and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like, obvious winner here. No contest. We have a champion. The story goes on just a little bit, uh, and it's kind of interesting where um, Elijah starts praying for rain and sends his servant out to see if there's any clouds in the sky. And eventually his little servant guy comes back and says, yeah, there's, there's a cloud in the sky. It's about the size of my hand coming out of the, uh, over the sea. He's like, all right, run, because it's about to be a downpour. And it is. And so at Elijah's prayer, God sent the rain and ended the famine So a couple ways that God here on this mountain proved himself beyond a shadow of a doubt. So I wanna ask you today, have you ever had a mountaintop experience like this? Maybe not the exact experience of like seeing fire descend from heaven and consuming a sacrifice in front of you, but have you ever had an experience where God becomes undeniably real? Undeniably real. You feel his presence stronger than you've ever felt before. Maybe you've heard or felt a voice of comfort, of reassurance, of guidance, whatever it may be. Have you ever had one of these kinds of mountaintop experiences where God becomes undeniably real to you? You can't prove it to anybody else. You can't be like, here, I measured it, and here are the results. Obviously, God exists. Maybe it's, it's nothing like that. Maybe it's not a big to-do miracle like happened on Mount Carmel. But I know for myself, I've had a couple of these over my time. Um, the first one would be uh, that I can remember is really what got me started on the track of ministry in the first place. I was at church camp. And we had one night where, uh, well, we ended each night with what we called circle of friends, all right? Sounds kind of cheesy, but it is what it is. Where we would all gather under kind of the main pavilion area, have the, the benches all in a circle facing inward, and where we would just kind of end the night singing and praying and then go into our cabins. But this particular night was one in which a lot of other students and campers there 
we're off talking to their youth ministers, talking to their counselors, talking to people about getting their lives right with God. We had several baptisms that night. It was amazing. And so since all the, uh, most of the adults who could lead the singing there were preoccupied, they turned it over to some of us uh, guy campers to get up and lead a few songs if we wanted to. And this was between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. I get up, start leading a couple songs, and just looking around at my peers, looking around at these teenagers, and feeling the presence of God, feeling the Holy Spirit at work in their lives, that's when I felt the call to ministry. That's when I felt the call of God saying, this is what you're going to do with your life. And I never looked back. I can't prove that to anybody, but it's my story. It's this mountaintop experience in which I felt the presence of God. I I felt his voice. I felt his guidance and his comfort and his reassurance. This is what you're to do with your life. There have been other times in worship. There have been other times on top of mountains as I'm hiking or the waterfalls that I see or just in these beautiful vistas on the beach where I just, God is there. Have you ever had one of these mountaintop experiences where God becomes undeniably real to you? Where there is no other explanation. Where nothing else makes sense except that it's God. Which brings us to our Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, we see some people that had one of these metaphorical, I don't think they were on an actual mountain, but one of these metaphorical mountaintop experiences where God becomes undeniably real to you. So here we meet the shepherds, right? Uh, This is a painting called The Angel Appearing to the Shepherds by Thomas Cole from the mid, early 1800s. Imagine you're a shepherd, just regular old shepherd, just watching your flocks at night, all right, as you do, just trying to catch some Z's. Maybe you're taking turns, taking watch with your uh, partners out there. You've all got your flocks together. They're all protected, everything. It's dark. It's quiet. You're outside of the small town of Bethlehem. And suddenly, boom, light all around you. <laughs> suddenly, these figures appear out of nowhere. And they're singing and they're proclaiming the greatness of God. I mean, what would you do? I mean, come on. Here we see, uh, sorry, let me find it. Uh, in uh, Luke 2, verse 8, in the region, some shepherds were watching, uh, staying in the fields at night, keeping watch over their sheep. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Have you ever noticed when God shows up, it's actually kind of scary? I mean, if you were there on Mount Carmel with Elijah and you saw that fire come down from heaven, wouldn't you be a little bit afraid too? Like, that's terrifying. Here the angels show up and they are terrified at first. Like, what is happening? To which the angels, gosh, they always give like some kind of like, don't be afraid, chill out. But I mean, Really, if you saw an angel as described in scripture, you would freak out too. You would be kind of terrified as well. The angel looked at them and said, don't be afraid. For look, I'm proclaiming 
to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the city of David, a Savior is born to you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. They had this mountaintop experience. I mean, how can you deny your experience in this moment? Like, are y'all seeing this too? There were multiples of them. Like, you saw that, right? Yeah, you saw. Did, did you hear? What, what is happening now? And so obviously they're like, right, we got to go check this out. And so they go into the town of Bethlehem, and sure enough, they find it exactly as the angels had described. They, they find this, this stable. They find this manger, this feeding trough that has a baby in it, and this exhausted, worn-out couple being like, uh, we didn't request visitors. <laughs> like, it's okay, the angels sent us. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, imagine the night that you gave birth to your firstborn child. Somebody showed up and said an angel came and told me to come visit you guys. Because this is awesome. We're like, uh, what? (laughs) And turns out they're just a bunch of farmers. Like, are you kidding me? This is nuts. This is ridiculous. I mean, if somebody were making this story up, you would not appear to shepherds. Nobody's. You would appear to what? Like kings, to princes, to officials in the system. Like you would want to make a big deal of it, but they, the angels appeared to shepherds. Wasn't after all David a shepherd? So these shepherds had this mountaintop experience where God becomes undeniably real to them, where they see the power of God, they feel the presence of God, and they know that God is with them, not just in the angels and in the the chorus that they sang, but God is with us in this child. I love what it says here in Luke chapter two, verse 17, after seeing them, They, the messenger, the shepherds, reported the message they were told about the child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. What could this possibly mean? In verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had seen and heard, which was just as they had been told. They were rejoicing. They were praising God. They were telling everybody about it. If you have one of these experiences... You probably want to tell somebody. You probably want to make it clear that God is real and God has appeared to me in this way and God has made his presence known to me. When you have these mountaintop experiences, you can't help but talk about them. I started off by saying God likes mountains and I believe that to be true. Because as we go forward in the Jesus story, we've come across another mountain This is known as Mount Tabor, or in other words, the Mount of Transfiguration. Next slide. This is one of my favorite paintings. This is just the top of it, because I cut off the bottom because we're not getting to that part of the story yet. But this is the Transfiguration of Jesus by Raphael in the 1500s. Yeah, the Ninja Turtle could actually paint. Uh, Some of y'all get that. But this is the Transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, 
And there he is transfigured before them. God's presence fills the area with a cloud. And guess who's there with them? Moses and Elijah. Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, and here on Mount Tabor. They're all there. And Peter, being Peter, not knowing what to say and, you know, speaking before thinking, as some of us uh, are in the habit of doing as well, says, hey, this is awesome. Uh, Maybe we should put up three uh, shelters, three kind of like places of honor for for each of you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. And then out of the cloud, the voice of God speaks, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. God becomes undeniably real to Peter, James, and John in this moment, in this mountaintop experience, where God's presence is fully known, not just in this cloud, but in the person of Jesus. God is with us. God has promised us his presence. He is with us in those mountaintop experiences. When anything good is happening in your life, that's God. James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above Everything good in your life, every blessing you have can be attributed to God with you. I love this quote that I came across by the author Henry Nouwen. Some of you may have read his books. He's a fantastic author, highly recommend him. He says this, at some moments we experience complete unity within us and around us. This may happen when we stand on a mountaintop and are captivated by the view. It may happen when we witness the birth of a child or the death of a friend. It may happen when we have an intimate conversation or a family meal. It may happen in church during a service or in a quiet room during prayer. But whenever and however it happens, we say to ourselves, this is it. Everything fits. All I ever hoped for is here. This is the experience of Peter, James, and John that had on the, on the top of Mount Tabor when they saw the aspect of Jesus' face change and his clothing become sparkling white. They wanted that moment to last forever. This is the experience of the fullness of time. These moments are given to us so that we can remember them when God seems far away and everything appears empty and useless. These experiences are true moments of grace. These mountaintop experiences, they're not going to last. The valley doesn't last forever, neither does the mountaintop. They are fleeting. They are here for a moment, and then they're gone. But they stick with you forever, and they are moments of grace that you can look back on to know God is with you. God is here, and everything is as it should be. I'm gonna invite the worship team back up as I give just two more quick points. One is a word of warning or caution. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, this is some of God's final words to his people before they enter the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses 11 through 18. I'm not gonna take the time to read it all, 
But God basically says, when you enter the promised land, when everything's going well for you, when you're well-fed, when you're comfortable at home, when you've got families and everything just seems right in your life, when you've hit that mountaintop time, don't forget God. Because it's God who enables you to work. It is God who has given you all these blessings. Don't forget God on the mountaintop. A word of warning, because sometimes when things are going horribly in our lives, when everything seems to go wrong, that's when we cry out to God. But when everything seems right, when everything just fits and is working as it's supposed to, that's when it's a mighty temptation to forget God. Don't forget God on the mountaintop. And then finally, a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. The author of Hebrews says, we're not coming to Mount Sinai with all these rules and regulations and thou shalt and thou shalt not, these things you can and cannot touch. He's saying, we have come to a better mountain, to Mount Zion, the future new Jerusalem, where God's presence will be with us, where Jesus is living there, where all of his saints are gathered together and this mountain won't end. We are approaching a mountain that will not end. We are approaching a mountain that will last forever. The mountain of God, the new Jerusalem with his people. That's what we are working towards. That's what we have to look forward to. Don't forget God on the mountain because God is with us. We're gonna sing one more song and then we actually have a baptism today. That was the special surprise at the end. Uh, We have a baptism today. So we're going to sing one more song. And then we're going to kind of go through the process uh, with with Henry. And uh, it's going to be a a good way to end this service. So if you would, and if you're able and willing, let's stand as we sing together.